Good morning, Christ community. Uh, good to see you all. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Reed Kappel, and I uh, had the joy of being here at the Latha campus uh, a few Sundays, uh, but I serve at our Leewood campus, and um, it is a joy to open God's word with you all this morning. Uh, as many of you know, uh, Pastor Nathan, with a few other members of Christ community, are in Rwanda right now, and so please do continue to be praying uh, for that team. Uh, Nathan texted me yesterday, actually, and he preached a sermon this morning at 1 a.m. our time. So uh, uh, I think it went well. We'll, we'll see. Uh, but um, yeah, so just continue to be lifting that team up in prayer. Uh, well, well, this morning, it, we ha- heard our text read this morning in Matthew 10. And if you have a Bible, uh, turn there, either paper Bible, digital Bible, or if you've got it memorized, great. But, uh, but it turned to Matthew 10. And as you're doing that, um, one thing that I know that is, is true of, of all of us is that we all have various fears. We all have legitimate fears and some more illegitimate fears. Uh, we have rational fears and irrational fears. And, and, and that's one of my favorite conversations. I've just done this over the last couple of years. If I'm ever in a group of people and it's kind of like awkward silence, I just ask this question like, what was your greatest childhood fear? And it always leads to in riveting conversation. So that's a free one for you. But, but one of mine that still plagues me to this day is that I have this irrational fear of people touching my wrists. It's, a, it's weird. I don't know why. It's not here. It's, not, it's where like the veins are, you know, and, and, and even talking about it, like I, I go to my happy place, you know, but, um, and if you, if you doubt me, I, like come sneak up behind me, graze your finger on the inside of my wrist, and I will either jerk my hand away, call you a jerk, or punch you in the face. One of those three options, I'm not sure. But it's just weird. I, I have no idea why. It's not rooted in some like childhood memory of like a clown coming at me with a knife or something. It was weird. It just, nothing ever caused this fear. But it has impacted my life on certain occasions. Uh, and one occasion was I was a, I was a summer intern at a church uh, with the youth group. And we were taking some kids to Worlds of Fun. And I'm in line. We got all these kids, about 40 kids. And we're paying. And, and the lady at the, the little turnstile is about to give us a stamp so that we can enter and exit. And when you go to an amusement park, where do you get your stamp? Right here, right? Like every, every amusement park in the world. I put my hand out, she takes my arm, flips it over, and proceeds to try to stamp the inside of my wrist. To which I pulled my arm away. I was like, what are you doing? And, and she looks at me, like everybody else, like, oh, calm down, weirdo, or just try to give you a stamp. I said, if it's all the same to you, do you mind just stamping the back of my hand like every other amusement park in the world? And, and she says, no, it is our policy to stamp the inside of your wrist. And she's like, you have got to be kidding me. And I'm like, I'm literally, I won't let her do it. I'm just like, no, uh, I don't have time to explain this weird childhood fear. If it's all the same to you, just stamp the back of my hand. And she refuses. And now the kids are getting irate. They're like, Reed, just let's go. Let her stamp the inside of your wrist. What's the big deal? And I was like, it's an irrational fear and I can't explain it. And so, so I've got to decide something. The people behind our group are now getting angry. And so like, I got to decide, I got to do something. And so I stick my wrist out, I'm vulnerable, you know, letting her know my fears. And so I put it out there and she goes to stamp it and I quickly turn my hand and she stamped the back of my hand. And then I run through the turnstile like a child. And, and so I was like, come on kids, everybody. And so that's one example of just how weird I am, but also how we all do. We all have fears, things that we're afraid of that don't just cause fear, but also impact our decisions, how we live our lives, and also how we spend our time and who we spend our time with. And sometimes that leads us to make decisions that have an adverse effect in our life. And it's this very issue of fear that is so natural to us and and is such a motivation for how we make decisions. It is this very thing that Jesus instructs his disciples to not have 
as he sends them out on a mission that is going to be very fearful as they take an offensive message about an offensive person to people who are very easily offended. And he instructs them to not have fear, which just should cause us to pause and say, like, how, is this even possible? I mean, is, does Jesus really mean this? Does he really mean that we should have no fear of the possible things that could happen in life and particularly on life in mission with Jesus in our world? And so what I, if you were with us last week, what I want us to, to see is the connection between what Pastor Nathan talked about. He introduced us to this idea that, that to follow Jesus is to live a life of mission with him everywhere we go, every day of our lives, with everyone we come in contact with. That to follow Jesus equates to being on mission with him. And this morning, as we look in Matthew 10, what we're going to see is that to be on mission with Christ, to follow him, means that we have nothing to lose Nothing to hide and nothing to earn. Nothing to hide, nothing to lose, and nothing to earn. But I'd like to just pray before we jump into God's word here. So let's, let's just take a minute to pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son and by the power of your spirit uh, to, to praise you and to give you thanks for your word that reveals truth to us. And so Lord, we ask that you would teach us your truth and that you would show us what you have in store for us and that we would come to see Jesus more fully, more, more clearly, and that it would lead us to live our lives with a greater intentionality and in being on mission with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew 10, uh, verses 26 to 28, this first idea that we have nothing to hide if we are on mission with Christ. And Jesus is, is continuing to instruct his disciples when he says, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now Jesus has just finished instructing his disciples uh, and, and explaining that they're going to face persecution, that they're going to endure suffering, that it's not a matter of, of if but a matter of when and how. And then Jesus says, and as you face that, have no fear. But he doesn't just say this with this kind of vague um, giving of platitudes of like, oh, don't fear, it's going to be fine, don't worry about it, things will be okay, we'll all come back and share our war stories and it'll be great. But he gives good reason for why the follower of Christ has nothing to hide, nothing to fear while they live on mission with Christ. And the first reason that he gives is rooted in the truth of God, God's truth. Jesus promises us that a day is coming that all people will know who he is. This is clear in scripture that all people, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And what we see is that people will respond to that revelation in, in different ways. Some will respond, respond with joy and anticipation, but some will respond with dread and fear because they will be the objects of judgment. And this day is coming. And so what Jesus is saying is, that, look, look, the truth is coming out. All things will be revealed. There's no need to hide this truth. And so for the Christian, what this truth should do for us is, in a sense, take the pressure off. That if the, the truth is going to come about, out about who Jesus is, then why not live more boldly? Why not proclaim more boldly about who Christ is? But he goes on, and, and Jesus actually makes the point even stronger when he says that, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. 
Now, what this means is that to be on mission with Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, it means that you will speak about him. You will speak about Jesus. That there is no opportunity, there's no option for a Christianity that does not lead to people talking about Jesus. There is no room left for that. If your version of Christianity, whether you're a Christian or not, if your version of Christianity does not entail speaking about Jesus, you have a counterfeit Christianity. Jesus is saying, you will speak of me. And, 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 and let me be careful. This is not a means to manipulate you, to make you feel guilty, like, oh, I need to talk about Jesus more. But rather, it should be a litmus test for helping us determine, do I actually delight in Jesus? Is this something that actually forms and informs and shapes my life? Or is this just this hobby, this part of my life that I kind of keep stored away? The reason I say this is because we tend to share the things that we delight in. We tend to share things that we delight in naturally. That's why like on every website, every video, every picture you see online, you will see this button. This button, what does that mean? It's a share button. Which is, if you're watching a video and you're like, this is hilarious, you have the option of sharing it. You can tweet it, you can email it, you can text it, you can share in various avenues. This is so ubiquitous, so common on the internet. It's because we love sharing things. And particularly, we love sharing things that we enjoy. Not because we feel obligated. Like if I'm watching this funny video, like, oh, oh. I've got a friend who will think this is hilarious. I've got to share it with him now. Like, no, you, you delight to share because in the sharing, your joy in that thing is, is increased. It's, uh, here's a great example. When I was, uh, we were on a vacation, uh, road trip to Colorado, and my two oldest daughters, Lula and Jane, were watching Cinderella. And they had their headphones on, the TV was on, the little screen uh, in our van, and they, they hold their you know, headphones, uh, the, the earphones like this, like as if they're going to fall off their head, but they don't. And they're watching, and it's during the, the time when the mice are singing, Cinderella, Cinderella, night and day. It's, you, know, you know that song? I'll stop. Um, and it's my, my daughter Lula's favorite part of the movie. And as she's watching, she just, she's overcome with joy. And her rea- she just starts swatting Jane like this. And she just goes, Jane, are you watching this? <laughs> and it's just her natural reaction. Just like, this is so great. Somebody else has to see, you know? And it's her natural reaction. Because in that moment, her joy wasn't complete until it was shared. In the same way, what Jesus is getting at when he says, when he talks about denying, denying him before the Father or speaking about him before others, we share not because out of a sense of obligation, but, but out of a sense of joy, that in the sharing, our joy is increased. And so we should ask ourselves this question, if, if we're not sharing, if you're a follower of Christ, if we're not speaking of Jesus naturally, readily, joyfully, well, it should cause us to pause and ask ourselves, is it Jesus that I really enjoy? And so this is the first thing that Jesus explains to us of why we have no reason to hide and no reason to fear, that his truth will come out and his truth is joyful. But the second point of why we have nothing to hide is because of God's power. Jesus roots it in God's power. Verse 28, Jesus goes on to instruct, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, essentially what Jesus is saying here is that he's not saying that, that there is literally nothing to fear ever, that like, you will never have harm. He's not explaining you will not, ex- you will not experience harm, but what he is saying is that relatively speaking, what other people can do to us pales in comparison, cannot match up to the worst that God can do to us. Now, that's kind of a terrifying thought at first, but, but Jesus is trying to put things in perspective 
Other people can harm our body, can destroy our body, can kill our body, but cannot touch the essence of who we are. They cannot destroy our soul. And so Jesus is framing and putting things in a relative context here to help us understand, look, I'm not saying that you will not experience harm, but you have no reason to fear that when you understand who God is and what he is capable of. Now, that may sound really weird to some people, like, so you're saying we need to fear God more than others? And in a sense, yes. Essentially, what, what we need to fight fear, you need to fight fear with fear, essentially. But, but for some people, the idea of fearing God is kind of backwards and odd. Like, well, shouldn't I love God and delight in God, worship God, not fear God? And, and the word fear in, in the scriptures, it's not so much this, this idea that, that we are to have this dread of God and, and we're completely always in fear of him, running from him. But the picture that the scriptures reveal about what it means to fear God is to have an understanding that he is an authority figure over us who is the object of amazement. And that when we understand God in that way, see, if we just look at God in the sense of, I'm afraid of him, I'm constantly under his judgment, I just want to run, we only know God's holy justice. That's living in dread of God. But when we fear God, we know both his holy justice and his holy love. And that is what allows us to enter into relationship with him. And Jesus is instructing us to fear God, the one who can do far more damage to us than anyone else. Recently, I had the chance to hear from Dayton Moore. Uh, He's the general manager of the Royals. And if you don't know uh, Dayton Moore, uh, he's actually a a very public Christian, uh, very vocal about his faith. And he was speaking at an event that I was at, and someone asked him the question, how do you deal with the stresses and the pressures of being a general manager in, in Major League Baseball? And his answer was this. He said, what's the worst thing that can happen to me? Dying and going to hell. And because that's not going to happen, the pressure is off. And, 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 and he, didn't, he didn't kind of like just dismiss it. He's like, it doesn't mean that I, I don't have a stressful job. It doesn't mean that I don't have fears and, and I'm overwhelmed and pressured. But, but when I understand that the worst case scenario is gone and not going to happen then I have a freedom and a confidence to live my life in such a way that I didn't have before. And I just thought that was a really helpful way of framing this. And and as I heard that, part of me was kind of thinking, gosh, I I wish I saw God in that way. I wish I had that kind of fear where I could say the pressure's off. It doesn't mean that I don't have pressures or stresses, but relatively speaking, the pressure's off. But there's this second part of me that as I'm hearing that, it just says, is this even naturally possible like, how, how do we live without fear? How do we understand this? How can I rid myself of the fear of others? And how can I rid myself of the fear of what can be done to me and hold God in this high view? And really, at the heart of what this, this, the, the struggle of fear that we have is that we do. We fear men over God. And in his book, which is just perfectly titled, uh, when, God is, uh, when People Are Big and God Is Small, uh, Ed Welch, he describes this for us very well. He says, we fear people because they can expose and humiliate us, they can reject, ridicule, or despise us, they can attack, oppress, or threaten us. These three reasons have one thing in common. They see people as bigger than God, and out of the fear that creates in us, we give other people the power and right to tell us what to feel and think and do. Really, this, this crippling and controlling fear of men is rooted in either a diminished or a non-existent view of God. That's really what it's rooted in. 
And, and so the remedy to this, if we are to find ourselves living a life of free of fear, it's not found in kind of downplaying our, our fears and downplaying our stresses, downplaying the harms of life, but it's having a larger view of God so that in such a way that it doesn't matter, relatively speaking, what happens to us because the worst case scenario is gone. And so one of the remedies I think we need if we're trying to find how to live a life without fear, it comes from having a bigger view of who God is. And I think one of the best ways that, that we can do this as a, as, a, as a people is to hear stories of how people throughout church history have endured suffering and persecution and ultimately death because of their faith in Christ. I think it's really encouraging to hear these stories from church history. And one such story that's very fitting for our passage this morning is the story uh, of the death of Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, which is in modern-day Turkey. And, and Polycarp was actually an, uh, discipled by the, the apostle John, which is really encouraging. When you're just reading history and church history, you see the connections like, oh man, like the people in the Bible and the people in history, like they lived in the same world. They they actually connected. It kind of brings the Bible to life in some ways. And so the story of Polycarp is fascinating. He was brought before the proconsul in Rome because of his belief in the gospel and his proclaiming of the gospel. And it was, it was basically seen as rebellious against the Roman Empire. And the proconsul says this I will, to, to uh, Polycarp, I will tame thee with fire since you despise the wild beasts unless you repent. And Polycarp essentially gets all up in his grill or in his face and says this, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is soon extinguished. But the fire of the future judgment and of external punishment reserved for the ungodly you are ignorant of. But why do you delay? Do whatever you please. This has been recorded for us in history and what we see is this boldness of Polycarp to look his accuser in the face who has the power to end his life and he says, you ultimately cannot touch me. You can burn me and that fire will be extinguished in an hour, but you have no idea, you have no idea what my God can do to me and I know that he won't and because of the, the pressure being off, Polycarp can actually talk trash in the face of the person who is going to put him to death because he had a large view of who God was. God was large and people were small. So this is the reason that Jesus gives us. We have nothing to hide because of God's truth, but also because of his power. And then the third is that it's also rooted in God's care for us. And Jesus explains this in verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So here's what Jesus is getting at. God is transcendent, which is just a fancy way for saying God is above us, beyond us. And simultaneously, God is imminent, which is just a fancy word for saying he is with us and near us. And we oftentimes focus on one of those over the other, that God is above us and we, we just don't even relate to him, or he's just kind of our buddy and our, our homie and, our, uh, and kind of like a grandfather who's with us. But, but it is both. God is transcendent above us and he is imminent and near us. He is over us and with us. He is our creator and our sustainer. And because of that, we have a God who is sovereign over the solar systems and the movement of planets, and he is sovereign over our respiratory systems and the movement of every breath. And when you understand God in that way, it changes the way that you think about how he relates to you, that this God who knows all things knows you, knows your hurts, knows your pains and your fears better than you do. 
And if these dirty little birds, these winged creatures that no one has ever considered having for a pet, is, are, are cared for by God, how much more does God care about you and your life and the things that you are going through? Are you not much more valuable to him? And so in this, that old saying that the devil is in the details proves to be wrong. It is God who is in the details. And he is intimately involved in your life and my life and everything that we experience. And so because of this, Jesus says we have nothing to hide. But then secondly, he continues to show us that we also, by following him and living on mission, we have nothing to lose. In verse 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now Jesus is not speaking literally here. When when, when he uses the, the, the picture of the sword, it's not this picture of a militant leader coming in to destroy, but rather it is a picture that shows us that if we are going to follow Jesus... And so for those of you who aren't following Jesus, if you're just not sure, I just want to be very clear. If you're going to follow Jesus, you will experience rejection. You will experience opposition. I know that's not the greatest selling point, but Jesus is very open about this. To follow Jesus, you will experience rejection. And you will experience it in some ways by those that love you the most and those that you love the most. So Jesus is not painting this picture of a militant leader coming in to destroy, but rather this this idea that people will reject you because of me. Jesus is not the one creating the division. It's those that reject Jesus that cause that. Now there's another, if, if, if people are rejecting you because you're a jerk about it, that's a different story. But what Jesus is saying is that people will reject you and be opposed to you because of me. And to be clear, like I said, this is not something that we should pursue and be adamant about, that, that to pursue opposition is something that the Christian must do. It's that rather it's something that the Christian will experience. That opposition and rejection, it is not a prescription of the Christian life. It is a description of the Christian life. That we shouldn't pursue opposition and rejection, but it will come if we are living on mission with Christ. Last week, Nathan mentioned this, that that Jesus always invites us and pushes us and leads us towards opposition, towards difficulty, towards hardship, towards pain, and not always away from it. And so that should lead us to ask the question, if we have never experienced division or rejection or opposition because of our faith, for those of us who would say we are Christians, if we've never experienced that, then we should ask the question, is it Jesus that I'm following? Because Jesus is inextricably connecting opposition, rejection, and, and, and division with following him. And if we don't experience that in some way, shape, or form throughout our life, then we are either living too vaguely as Christians, too silently, or too rebelliously. One of those three. We're either living too vaguely, too silently, or too rebelliously. Because Jesus says you will experience it. But again, it is a description not a prescription of the Christian life. So up until this point, Jesus has said some rather radical things. These are one of those, like, let's just kind of like gloss over these and kind of go back to the love thy neighbor. That's really cool. I like that stuff. But Jesus is not bashful about this. But he goes on to say even more radical things, and particularly in verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Just think about what Jesus is telling us here. He's saying, I am to be loved and adored and cherished and valued more than anyone else that you love. 
more than all of them combined. This is not the claim of a good moral teacher. This is the claim of either a megalomaniac or a messiah. Those are the only options. And we have to decide which one Jesus of Nazareth is. And he is saying, look, if I am who I claim to be, and if you believe who I am, then you will understand that I am to be loved and cherished above all things. Not because Jesus is anti-family, but because rather Jesus understands that until you love me more than your family, you will improperly love your family. Because you will expect more from them that they cannot give. And you will either crush them or they will crush you. Until our loves are ordered properly as God designed it, we will find ourselves living out of balance. And Jesus is making it clear, you will experience division if you place me above all things. And for some of us, this family division hits really close to home. You know, you know that your faith has caused division, rejection, betrayal, uh, complete uh, possible harm to you uh, in your family. And, and, and this is something, again, Jesus has promised us will happen. In fact, there, there's a story I recently heard a young man at our, our Leewood campus, his name is JJ, was telling me a story about his friend, who I won't name just for safety reasons, um, grew up in India, moved here when he was in middle school, raised as a Sikh uh, in the religion of Sikhism, and uh, came to know the Lord through JJ and a few other friends. And it was this beautiful story, and he was kind of keeping it private from his family for a while, but when he finally shared it with them, they were irate. And it, and it caused this huge turmoil in their family. And they said, his parents said to this young man, we would rather have a dead dog as a son than you following Jesus as our son. And they, they stopped paying for his college. They kicked him out of the home. Uh, they, they started to uh, burn all his books that were associated with Christianity and his journals. Uh, and, and they're now sending him this summer on what's called a temple tour around to these various Sikh temples to hopefully indoctrinate him and bring him back into the Sikh religion. And, and this young man, as he was kind of reflecting on this, he said, I hate, I hate what this has done to my family. But he said, but I am not backing down because I've come to see the goodness of who Jesus is. And as much as I love my family, I know that they can't promise what Jesus promises. And I hope and pray that through this temple tour, it will actually be an opportunity for me to love my family and for them to come to know Christ. How does that happen? H how do these stories come about? It's only because we've come to see something that is out of this world. It can't be explained by the things in this world. What this young man is experiencing is exactly what Jesus promised, that a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now Jesus used the example of family because family was the most vital thing in that, in that culture in that day. Your family was your livelihood, your retirement plan. If you were severed from your family, it's, it's a form of death essentially. But that may not be as 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 prevalent of, of a value for us. Maybe it's not family for you, but maybe it's, it's your social status. Maybe it's, it's your uh, socioeconomic status. Maybe it is, is recognition. It is some reputation you're aiming for. Whatever it is that you're afraid of experiencing opposition in and rejection in, that is the thing that Jesus says you're going to face it and you need to be prepared for it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, frames it for us in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, when he says, is there some part of your life which you are, you are refusing to surrender, some sinful passion or some animosity, some hope, or perhaps your ambition? If so, you must not be surprised that you have not received the Holy Spirit, that prayer is difficult, or that your request for faith mean, remains unanswered. Now this principle is true for both Christians and non-Christians. 
When we place our hope, when we place our identity, our worth, and our joy in something that can be lost, we will find ourselves living a life of perpetual disappointment and frustration. We tend to find that our peace and joy are lost in life because we root them in something that can be lost. And Jesus says, to avoid that mistake, root your peace and your joy in something that can never be lost, that can never be destroyed. And this is what Jesus invites us into. But we struggle with this. We struggle with this idea because we're afraid of losing the things that we have rooted our peace and joy in. And we struggle with Jesus' words, particularly in verse 38 and 39. When he says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, when Jesus invites us to follow him and to be on mission with him, it is an invitation to die. He's not inviting us to add him as as an upgrade. It is not a supplement. Uh, It is not a hobby. If it will, if I can use a techie example here, Jesus is not another app that you add onto your phone. He is an entirely new operating system that replaces the old one. You don't have two operating systems in one phone, one device. The old one must be put away for the new one to be replaced. That's how it works. And when we understand this, the beautiful paradox is that in losing our life, we find it. In giving away our life, we save it. This is how God has created us to live and is inviting us to live yet again with him. And so when we live this way, when we live with nothing to hide and nothing to lose, we are primed and ready to receive the reward that we cannot earn. And that leads us to this last point, that Jesus has been, is showing us that the reason we have nothing to hide and nothing to lose is because he is the reward that we cannot earn. As he says in verse 40, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, in Jesus' day, it was very common if you interacted with an agent or uh, the representative or an ambassador of someone, you were interacting with that person, that they were one and the same. And so Jesus is saying, as the disciples go, as they were going into cities, the people that interact with the disciples are interacting with Jesus. That's essentially what they're saying. And he says, as they receive you, they are receiving me. And Jesus goes on to explain that he is the reward. And when we understand that he is the reward, it, it, it frames and helps us understand why we have nothing to hide and nothing to lose. And, but what we, what we have to understand, though, is that the path to this reward is not a path found in, in tasks, in activity. It's found in forfeit. It's found in surrendering. The path to the life, the reward that Jesus is painting for us is not found in activity. It's not found in the quality of how we live our lives. It's found in our ability to die and our willingness to die to self. That's why Jesus says in 38 and 39, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, one thing to be clear is that Jesus, as he's inviting us into this life of mission with him, he's inviting us into a life that is marked by self-denial and self-sacrifice, but those are not the end game of the Christian life. We tend to think like that's kind of what it means that if you're a good Christian, you kind of deny yourself and you live self-sacrificially. But those are simply the means to a greater end. Those are the act of tearing out the weeds and tilling the soil in order for the, the garden of the gospel to be planted and flourish in your life. But we tend to look at self-denial and self-sacrifice as, no, I do these things so that I can feel good about myself and I'm a good Christian. But no, they are the means to receiving the reward that is Jesus himself. Jesus is not just the means to something better. He is the reward. 
to, to make it, to take it even a step further, even the blessings of the gospel, the blessings of being forgiven and reconciled to God, being adopted as sons and daughters, being resurrected and one day ultimately glorified, as good as all of those blessings are, they are simply the means to the end, which is Christ himself. When we see the gospel as just, oh, I, I, or when we see Jesus as, I like Jesus because I like the idea of being forgiven, we are treating Jesus as a ticket that we cash in for a reward. A reward. If you've ever been to like a Chuck E. Cheese, you know, if you kids have been there, you play these games, these tickets come out. Do you ever go home, kids, with these tickets and cuddle up with them in bed like, I got all these tickets? Like, no, no one values the tickets. The tickets are only valuable because they get you the reward. That giant stuffed, you know, grizzly bear that's like hanging from the ceiling, that's what you want. The ticket is only valuable to you because it gets you the reward in the same way when we view Jesus as simply this ticket. I like Jesus because I like being forgiven. I like Jesus because I like that the world has meaning and and purpose. I like Jesus because I don't like going to hell. When we view Jesus in this way, he is the ticket and not the reward that our hearts are longing for. And this is a question that we should really honestly reflect. If you're a Christian or not, when you think about Jesus, do you see him as just a ticket to something else? Or do you see him as the ultimate reward that your heart longs for? And this is the question that that pastor and author John Piper poses so well. And I'm just going to preface it. It's a haunting question. It is a question that stings, but it is a question nonetheless that we should reflect on. And he says this. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? And just, just let that just sit for a second. Just think about what this question is getting at. It is trying to help us see that we tend to view Jesus as the ticket and not the reward. And like I said, this is a haunting question, but it's a question that I hope will reveal who we see Jesus to be and what it means to follow him to the point that we have nothing to hide, nothing to lose, because he is the reward that we cannot earn. Is Jesus the the reward, or are we seeking a lesser treasure? And these are crucial questions that each of us should ask. Wherever we are in our faith journey, we should ask these questions. And I know that Jesus has said some radical and intense things for us. And so what I think I would just like to do to end our time is just to give us some space to honestly reflect and and ponder a few questions that will sting a bit, but I think that in the stinging, they will help us see how we have either failed to see Jesus for who he is and give us an opportunity to respond to him as the one who gives us a life where we have nothing to hide, nothing to lose, and nothing to earn. And so I encourage you, whether you're a Christian or not, to reflect on these questions and to honestly pray and to ask, how do I answer these? And what does it mean to see Jesus as the reward and not the ticket? So this first question, let's just take a minute to reflect and pause. This first question is this. What am I fearing more than God? What am I fearing more than God? Secondly, what am I struggling to surrender to God? What am I struggling to surrender to God? Is Jesus simply my ticket or is he my reward? 
Is Jesus simply my ticket or is he my reward? Father in heaven, we come to you again in, in prayer to, to recognize that, that we are a fearful people, that we are plagued by, by fears both great and small. And Lord, while I know this is not fully true of my life, I, I know that the remedy to my fears is to see you for who you truly are. And so, Lord, I ask that you would reveal to us the life that Christ invites us into, the mission he is bringing us into to partner with him, to be a part of the work that you are, where you are reversing the effects of the fall. Lord, would, would you help us to see the life we are invited into is a life where we truly do have nothing to hide, nothing to, nothing to lose, nothing to fear, because Jesus is the reward that we cannot earn. So Lord, I ask that you would reveal to us where, where we are holding on to things too tightly, where we are so fearful. And may that reveal to us, Lord, that, that our fears are showing us that we are not seeing you for who you are. So Lord, may we see, may we see you for who you are. And may we see Jesus as the great reward that our hearts are longing for. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.